Why don't you grab your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14. says, but thanks be to God who always puts us on display in Christ and spreads through us in every place the scent of knowing Him. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some we are the scent of death leading to death, but to others a scent of life leading to life. And who is competent for this? I love to win. Uh, I'm not a big fan of losing. How many of you just confessed today that if you had the choice, you'd rather win than lose? Right? Victory always tastes better than defeat. I love to win at everything. It doesn't matter what it is. I, I love to win. It could be racing my six-year-old son home from school. I want to win. I know I should let him win, but I just can't help it. I don't know what's the matter with me. I want to win. And so lately I figured out a way for me to actually win and him to think that he is one. That makes us both feel good. Uh, I want to win in card games, board games, uh, video, pictionary. I want to win everything. Even when I was coaching Jackson's uh, six-year-old basketball team last winter, they didn't keep score but I kept score because I want to win. Love to win. Uh, some of you may be like, I don't really care. I'm just in it for the thrill of the game. I don't know what's the matter with you. I want to win. I would rather play bad and win than play well and lose. I love to win. And I think probably if you got to choose between winning and losing, you would rather win. But you know in life, you don't always get to decide if you win. Sometimes you do your best and you prepare and you get ready. And sometimes your best... It's just not as good as somebody else's best. Or sometimes the circumstances, they break someone else's way and they don't break your way. You don't always get to pick whether or not you win. But the name that we're coming around this morning, the name of Jesus, if you're connected to that name, then you're connected to victory. If you're attached to Christ, if He's in you and you are in Him, then you win. You have victory. And his victory, which he has achieved, overflows into our life. The idea that we are coming around this morning is that the victory of Christ should always be on display in us. Look at verse 14. It says, But thanks be to God who always puts us on display in Christ. Your version of the Bible may say, leads us in triumphal procession. Paul is using a metaphor from the Roman Empire. We talk about, a lot about the Roman Empire, and I know you don't come to church for history, but just like if we went to tell your story so we could understand your life and the things that you say and do, it would be important, the context uh, that you lived in. And so we would spend a lot of time talking about your home and the places that you work and the things that happen in your city. And so we do in the Scripture as well. And so the Roman Empire was ruling the world at this time, and and so, you know, uh, from history class or from movies, uh, they spread out everywhere that they could go. The Roman Empire went and tried to conquer those places. So they would send out their generals with their armies and they would go into a territory and they would come against the people of that territory. Sometimes they would come into these territories and the people would be like, I can't fight you. You're the Roman Empire. We're just this little people. And they would give up and now Rome would control that area. Sometimes people would fight and uh, there would be a battle. And usually at the end of the day, the Roman Empire would win. And so after months and months or sometimes years, those generals, generals and their armies, they would eventually come back to the city of Rome. 
And when these conquering generals came back, they came back to a giant parade. And so Rome would throw open its gates and they would parade to the temple of Jupiter, which was one of the main gods that they worshipped in Rome in the first century. That was the destination. And all along the path, there would be people lined up cheering these conquering generals as they come home. And in those parades, there would be the general and his officers, and then there would be the soldiers, and, and then there would be the prizes that they've, they've taken from these new territories, and then at the end of the parade would be their captives, some of the important people, the kings, the rulers, the leaders that they had conquered. They would bring them back to Rome to put them on display. And so Paul reaches into the Roman Empire, uses this metaphor to explain that Jesus has conquered all. That he has won victory. Everywhere that God sent him out to, he brought everything underneath his feet. Uh, He conquered... Well, you have to think first about the story of Jesus. You know, sometimes we, since we know the full story of Jesus, uh, we lose some of the mystery and some of the impact. But if you can just try to hear it for the very first time as if you had never heard it this morning. Jesus, the Son of God, He's sent by God to earth, born of a woman, wraps on human flesh. Why? To rescue you and I from sin, death, and hell. Sin had taken us captive. And we were powerless to bridge the gap that had been created by our sin between God and man. And so Jesus comes to earth on a rescue mission to bring back what had been broken. For 33 years, he lives a righteous life. For you and I, we made those mistakes. We chose to lie, steal, and cheat, to dishonor God, to rebel against God. Jesus always obeyed. He did the right thing. And at 33, he laid that perfect, righteous life down on the cross. No one takes the life of the Son of God. He freely offered it on the cross so forgiveness could come to us. Now we know the rest of the story, so we're not nervous at this moment. But imagine you didn't know the rest of the story. Here Jesus is the Son of God, sent to save us, and he's dead. What does that mean? Does it mean sin wins? Was the curse of sin too strong to overcome? Are we destined to be ensnared And trapped by our transgressions. Does Satan win? He opposes God at every turn. Hates God. Hates the people of God. And especially hates the Son of God. At every moment that he could try to trip Jesus up. To tempt him. To get him off of mission. There Satan was to do that. And now Jesus is dead. Does Satan win? Is he forever free to torment us? And to mock God, does death win? Is it true that not even the Son of God could escape death's grip? Is that our future and the final period of our life? Death. Well, you know the story, and you know that there's a Christmas and there's an Easter. And so Jesus was not dead very long. Three days later... He's raised from the dead. And when he raises up from the dead, sin loses. Satan loses. Death loses. And this morning, the Son of God is victorious. There's not one thing in the universe that is not underneath his feet. 
today. But Paul says that God has put him on display in Christ. Now what does that mean? It means that he's in the parade. The Roman general coming through Rome, Paul's in the parade. But what position is he? What person is he? You know, is he somebody is he a spectator watching the parade go by? Is he one of the, the, the officials, one of the officers? Is you know, that's where we would probably put the Apostle Paul. Is he one of the soldiers? No, actually, what he means is that he's one of the captives. Which sounds weird to us, because if I was going to pick who I wanted to be in that parade, being a captive is going to be the last person that I want to be. I want to be one of the co-generals. That's where I want to be. I want to be up front so that the loudest cheers are coming around me. Maybe not directed at me, but kind of spilling over onto me. That's where I want to be. A soldier at worst, you know, just a nameless soldier. That would be at worst. But to be a captive, who would ever pick to do that? And why is Paul placing himself in that position? As one of those who have been conquered coming into the Roman city. It's because what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church is, listen, Jesus has victory. He is a conqueror. He has victory and he reigns over everything, including me. You know, it's easy to say that Jesus reigns over the whole earth or Jesus reigns when I have a problem that I need him to solve or Jesus has power when I need him to get me out of a jam. It's easy to say that Jesus reigns then. It's harder than to say Jesus reigns over everything, including me. That permission is harder to give away. But that's the primary confession of a Christian. If you're not a Christian this morning... What it means to be a Christian is it means that you come to a place in your life where you declare and confess that Jesus is Lord. At the end of time, when everyone bows their knee in front of Jesus, you know what everyone's tongues are going to confess? That Jesus is Lord. It's the primary confession of our lives as Christians. And that's what Paul is saying when he says that he's on display. He's saying that I've been captured by the reign of Jesus but not in a way that leads to death, but in a way that leads to life. So we're on display this morning. That the victory of Christ should be evident in you. So I'm always asking how. You know, how does that work? How is the victory of Christ at work in me, invisible in me? I think there are two things. If you wanted to write something down this morning, we're not usually point uh, people, but uh, I thought I'd bring some points this morning. The first way the victory of Christ is visible in you is when you invite the Lordship of Jesus down every street of your life. You can imagine that parade coming through Rome. This street, to this street, to this street, to that street, eventually to their destination. And Christ's victory is on display for the world to see in us when we invite Him down every street, every corner, every pocket, every arena, every avenue, every part of our lives. You know, I think most of us are fine with Jesus being Lord. That's a great title. You know, Jesus can have a lot of titles. He does when you read the scripture. He's got a lot of titles. He's got a lot of names. He's the son of God, son of man, uh, branch. Somebody called him a branch one time. I guess he liked that. Uh, he's the door. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the shepherd. I mean, he's got a lot of titles. And for us, sometimes Lord, it's just another one of those titles that are, is associated with Jesus. It's out there floating around some kind of spiritual space. But what we want this morning is not for Jesus to have the title of Lord. We want it to be a description of how he's working in our lives. Jesus is not just Lord. Jesus is being Lord of my life at this very moment. 
It's not just some title that he holds somewhere in spiritual space, but he is actively at this very moment being Lord in me. So what does it look like for you to invite the Lordship of Jesus into your life? And not just in a general way, but in a specific way. What does it mean to invite him to be the Lord of your work and the Lord of your house and the Lord of your fun and the Lord of your relationships? You know, some, sometimes I think we live under this false assumption that Jesus loves Jesus stuff and he kind of gets annoyed with everything else. You know, that he loves when we pray, and so when we pray, he's there. And when he loves when we read the Bible, so when we read the Bible, he's there. And he loves for us to sing songs to him, and so when we sing, he's there. And he loves for us to come to church, obviously. And so, uh, you know, he loves when we're here. Uh, he loves for us to serve people, so when we're doing that, he's here with us. But then when you have to do all the other stuff in your life that isn't included in those four or five things, then he's bored or annoyed or maybe he just goes and finds somebody else. He doesn't forget you, but he goes and finds somebody else who's doing those things. And when you start doing those things again, there he is back. But when you've got to do all the regular stuff of your life, he has mixed feelings about that stuff. But that's not true. But so what happens, because we live under that assumption, is we let Jesus and we welcome Jesus to be Lord of all the Jesus stuff. And then we just kind of have no Lord when we're doing all the other stuff. Jesus, I'm praying, so I'm assuming that you want to be a part of this. I'm reading the Bible, so I'm assuming you want to be a part of this. I'm coming to church, so I assume you want to be a part of this. But like right now, I'm like on my way to work, and so there's not a lot of Jesus stuff between here and there. And you know, I already prayed earlier, so I'm not really wanting to pray right now, so I'm just going to listen to the radio. I'm assuming that you don't want to be a part of this. And Jesus is the Lord of the Jesus stuff. And then there's everything else. But Jesus is Lord of the Jesus stuff, sure, but of everything else. So what does it look like for you to invite him into the everything else? What does it mean to wake up in the morning and say, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to make me a cup of coffee. Jesus, I don't know if you want to be a part of this, but I'm inviting your lordship into it. I, I don't think he's going to pick a flavor for you. I don't think he cares that much. But I just want you to know in this space of me waking up this morning, Jesus, I remember that you're Lord and you're welcome here. I'm getting in the car to drive to work. I do the same 30-minute, 45-minute hour drive to work every morning. But Jesus, I just want to say as I'm getting in my car, you're welcome to be Lord for this next 45 minutes. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if you're going to whisper in my heart, take a right or what. But I'm, you're welcome to just be Lord in this space. Here I am at my desk. Or dad's gone and I'm here with the kids and normally we kind of got our routine. Jesus, I'm just inviting you while I'm staying at home with my kids today. You are welcome to be Lord in this home today. Here I am at my desk and I got a long list of to-dos and I'm, I'm getting ready to make some sales call, make some phone calls, do my thing, meet, have some meetings. And I just want to tell you for the next four or five hours, you're welcome to be Lord as I work. I'm going to lunch now. I got an hour break. I got an hour and a half break because my boss is gone today, so nobody's going to notice. And I just want to welcome you to be Lord as I go eat lunch. Again, I don't think he's going to pick a restaurant for you. You can ask, and maybe he will whisper something into your heart. But again, I don't think that's the point. Now I'm back at work. Help me finish my day. You're welcome to be the Lord of the rest of my day at work. I'm on my way home. Be Lord of my drive home. 
I'm in my house. I'm coming in. I'm going to be with my family today. Or maybe I'm single and I just got my time. I can do whatever I want. I've got a, a list of things to do. You are Lord of my life as I'm doing all these things. What does it look like for you to invite Jesus' lordship, not just into the Jesus stuff, but into all the other stuff? Now, you may get to a part of your life, a relationship, maybe some things you're choosing to do with your time and your space that you cannot in good conscience say, Jesus, will you come and be Lord of this? Because you know he doesn't want a part of that. And those are the things that have to go. But Christ's victory is on display in us. When people see that Jesus is Lord, not just of the religious stuff, but of everything. Listen, no one will be surprised if you leave here today and go to work tomorrow and they say, what happened at church? And you're like, Jesus is Lord. And they'll be like, yeah, of course Jesus is the Lord at church. But when they start seeing that lordship, that authority, that surrender happening in all the areas of your life, they'll take notice and they'll see the victory of Christ. And then the second thing, people see the victory of Christ in us when his victory overflows into our lives. When his victory overflows into our lives. See, Jesus has won victory, but we we get to experience that victory because we're connected to him. So Jesus has won victory over sin. So what does it look like for that victory to spill over into your life? What does victory over sin look like in your life? You know, most of if I say, if I said this morning, you know, what sin do you feel trapped by the most? Do you feel that you get tangled up in the most? I would guess that most of us wouldn't have to think very long before something came to our minds. And it's probably been been something that we've been struggling with, fighting against for a long, long, long time. But the victory of Christ over sin can overflow into our lives. It's possible to be free from that. The scripture says that because Jesus has won victory over us, we're no longer chained by sin and death. Grace has come to us. Freedom has come to us. The victory of Christ overflows into our life to help us be free from sin. What about death? How can Christ's victory over death overflow into our lives? The sad reality this morning is all of us are going to die unless Jesus himself returns. Not something uh, we're probably all looking forward to this morning. I felt kind of a, oh yeah, this, you know, just then when I said that. Dang it, I forgot. What does it mean for us to have victory over death, even though that's probably our reality? It means we don't have to fear death. That even though we brush up against death sometimes with our friends and loved ones, we don't grieve as those who have no hope, the scripture says. We can have hope. We can have victory even in the midst of death's influence on our lives. We see that in Peter. You remember when Peter... um, was following Jesus after Jesus had been arrested. He was on trial and and there was a courtyard outside of the home that Jesus was on trial and the trial was fake. They were going to sentence Jesus to death no matter what. But Peter's out in this courtyard and people kind of recognize him as somebody not usually there and they recognize him from being a 
you know, near where Jesus grew up. And so they say to him three times, hey, don't you follow Jesus? Don't you follow Jesus? And what does he do? Three times he denies knowing Jesus. Why? Because he was afraid that if he admitted, yeah, I follow Jesus and I'm not ashamed to admit it, that they were going to take him and they were going to put him on trial next to Jesus, which meant he was going to get Jesus's sentence, which was death. Peter was afraid to die. And so he, he denied knowing Jesus. You fast forward after Jesus has been raised from the dead, ascended up into heaven. The church is beginning on the heels of Jesus commissioning them. Peter and John have just healed a man on their way to worship in the temple. And because they healed him, uh, a lot of people recognized it and they gathered around. And so Peter and John start preaching a sermon about Jesus, hello. And so they arrest Peter and John. So in the beginning of Acts, here Peter is. He's now a prisoner and he's standing in front of the same people that sentenced Jesus to death. The very thing that he was afraid of has now become a reality. And yet the scripture says that the the people are amazed by the boldness, by the bravery, by the courage of Peter and John. And somehow, after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter no longer feared death and it made a difference. Jesus' victory over death spills into our lives too. What about Jesus' victory over Satan? You know, the Bible says that what Satan wants to do in Ephesians is he wants to get a foothold in your life. How many of you, audience participation, have ever climbed something? Can I just see just so we're all on the same page? Yeah, it can be a long time ago. Uh, a fence, uh, a wall, a tree, right? As you're climbing things, unless you're Hercules, you need somewhere to put your foot. Right? So you can put your foot somewhere, and that place that you put your foot is called a foothold. It's not a step. It's not huge. It's just something that you can get your foot on to put some weight on so you can stand up and reach up and keep climbing. And the Scripture says that what Satan wants to do in our lives is he wants to get a foothold. This is a small place for him to get some, some hooks in so that he can spread his influence from there. I once knew this young woman, and she was very bitter about the way that she grew up. Uh, just had a, a ton of bitterness and anger about her childhood, specifically aimed at her parents. And, and as a late teenager, she really experienced this revival of faith. And so God was doing an amazing work, and, and, uh, and, and where she had been a hard person before. She had a soft heart, and she was active in church, and she was serving, and she was going on mission trips. Just a total revival of faith. It was really unbelievable to see. And, uh, you know, a few months or, or maybe even a year or so as that revival of faith kept progressing, something happened. And I don't know what happened, but something triggered. And immediately, it was as if overnight she reverted back to being that bitter, angry person. Now, how does something like that happen? If you would have looked at her in that year or two window when she was having this revival of faith, you would have said she's done with that. She's no longer the same person that she was. But Satan had a foothold, he had a place. And that bitterness and anger. And even though she experienced a change of heart and a change of mind and a change of direction, because she held somewhere deep onto that bitterness and anger, he had a place with which he could spring a trap. And it ruined her life in that season. Satan wants a foothold in you. You know, sometimes because he's just looking for a small place, we're only looking for the big places and we look at our lives and go, well, there's no big place that I think that Satan has a lot of influence over me. But does he have a foothold? Because the Bible talks about he wants a foothold and then he wants a stronghold. A stronghold is a fortress 
It's a place of maximum influence. Now maybe today you can't imagine Satan having maximum influence over your life. But it starts with just a small place, an open door that we've given him. So lately I've been trying to go through my life, my past, all the way back to when I was just a little one. And walk through my life and just ask God, is there, is there any times, any places, any things, any habits, any patterns, any decisions that I made that, that, that gave Satan an open opportunity that maybe still exists today? And so I want to bring some of those things that, to you this morning to just walk through your life. You know, have you, have you, have you, do you have any unforgiveness in your life? Somebody that has hurt you, wounded you, that um, you just can't forgive. Now, maybe you're saying all the right things. And if I came to you and says, have you forgiven this person? You'd be like, absolutely, I've forgiven this person. I'm even around this person every once in a while. But you know in the depths of your heart that forgiveness has not come. That can be a foothold for Satan if you hold on to that unforgiveness. Do you let yourself go with anger? Just fly into a rage. The Bible says in Ephesians... That anger gives Satan an opportunity. Are you consistently an angry person? That's a foothold for Satan to work his influence in your life. Have you gone through a season of your life where you just lacked self-control? You just did whatever you wanted to do when you wanted to do it. Satan can get a foothold there. Have you ever, and we're going old school here, I'm former Baptist. Actually, I'm a current Baptist. But uh, uh, have you ever... Have you ever messed with the occult? You'd be like, no, of course not. Golly, I'm not a Satan worshiper. I'm at church this morning. No. Have you ever gone to a psychic? Gone to a medium? Have you ever, um, when you were a little kid or last week, did you mess with the Ouija board? I think they're still around today. Were you ever a part of some kind of faith that was false and twisted? It's a foothold. For Satan, even though it may have been a long time in the, fa- in the past, that foothold could still be there, possibly, if we don't do anything about it. Have you ever gone through a season of your life where you had an, an extra interest in evil? You know, Halloween is coming up, and Christians have all kinds of different convictions about Halloween, and I think that's fantastic. I think that's what the, makes the church so great, is we're not all the same. Um, for, for the Joneses, uh, we'll be trick-or-treating. A, I love candy. And uh, B, um, B, it's the only time that I can walk up to my neighbor's house and knock on the door and them not go, what are you doing here? And um, it's the only time that they will come to my house. And so we used Halloween night as one of our primary nights to meet all our neighbors and connect with them, just to bring a little light into that holiday. And so sometimes, as you're celebrating things like that, it's just costumes, it's just candy. But listen, there is an evil in this world that is very real. There are ghosts and goblins in this real that are not pretend. Have you ever had a season in your life where you were really interested in that? Maybe you were going to a bunch of movies in this season of your life that had to do with that. Maybe you were reading stuff on the internet or you got some books about it, not because you, were, you wanted to do it, but just because you thought it was interesting. That can be a foothold for Satan. And I think... You know, we can't see into the hearts of men and women, and I can't see into your life, and you can't see into my life, but I'm guessing there are more footholds in our lives than we would like to admit this morning. Because we've just gone through our life thinking that everything we see is the only thing that exists. And so you want to come to a place where you do some kind of inventory 
to invite Jesus' lordship, not just into your good decisions, but maybe also some of your past decisions that weren't so great. And ask for him to come and bring his power and his name into those places. Because listen, he's already achieved victory over Satan. So it's not if we win. It's when will we win. Will that victory come to you at the end of your life? Or will that victory come to you in your life? Because it's possible for, for you to be free from Satan's influence. And look back at verse 14. And spreads through us in every place the scent of knowing him. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some we are a scent of death leading to death, but to others a scent of life leading to life. And so he kind of switches metaphors on us. And now he's talking about an aroma or an incense. And he talks about us being the fragrance of Christ. We won't turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, it talks about Christ being a fragrant aroma, a fragrant offering to God. Rooted in the Old Testament when the Israelites would offer sacrifices to God so that he would look past their sin, he would cover over their sin. The scripture talks about the, the smell of those sacrifices would go up and they would be pleasing to God, meaning he accepted their sacrifice. So when Christ laid his life down on the cross and it was a fragrant offering to God. It was a pleasing sacrifice, meaning God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And here Paul is talking about us being that fragrance of Christ to the world. That you, if you're connected to Christ, you smell like Jesus. You have the fragrance of Christ. And to some people, that's going to be welcome. It's going to give them life. They're going to be drawn into that. And to some people, it's going to be death. And they're going to want to go away from that. So what that means is it means that you can do everything that, that you know to do that's right. And some people are just not going to want to be around you. Because you smell like death to them. Because you smell like the fragrance of Christ. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. Before he was Paul, he was known as Saul, and he hated the church. We know him as the person who built the church, but he hated the church at first. Saw all these people following Jesus as if Jesus really was the true Messiah, and it made him angry. It made him angry. It made him so angry that he, 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 he went and arrested people and drugged them into prison just for being a part of the way of Jesus. It smelled like death to him. I told you before that in early high school, I went through a small season in my life where the last thing I wanted to do is go to church, but the first thing my parents wanted me to do was go to church, so we had a collision of wills, and, and you know they financed my life, so you know I ended up in church, and that's the way it goes. Listen, if you're financing your children's life, they, they'll do whatever you want them to do, because all you got to do is take away those dollar bills, and they will bend. They will bend eventually. You take away the dollar bills, they'll bend. I promise you. That's pastoral wisdom. And so... Um, so I would have to go to church all the time, and it's just the last place that I wanted to be. Now, if you would have asked me in that season of my life, do you hate Jesus? I'd be like, of course not. I love Jesus, because that's what you know, people are supposed to say. And listen, I believe that Jesus was my Savior, and that I was going to heaven after I die. But that's all it was for me. It was something that happened after I die. But I wanted to live my life however I wanted to live it, and I definitely didn't want to live it the way you know, my student pastor was telling me to live it. And so I would go to church because I had to, and I'd always sit in the back, and I'd take my baseball cap, and I'd pull it way down low, like so you couldn't see my eyes because I didn't want any of these church people talking to me, really. And I remember that there were people, um, they were just so into it. You know, they were just so into it. Then the, the music would start, they'd raise their hands, and I just thought that looked so foolish and embarrassing. 
You know, when the, the, the student pastor would ask for volunteers, they'd go up and volunteer. Like, what a bunch of losers, you know? Who wants to volunteer when somebody asked them to volunteer? They'd want to play the games. They'd want to go on the trips. And it just annoyed me. It just annoyed me for a season of my life. That they would, that they didn't know any better. They didn't know what was really out there. So they just had to do this church thing. Because it smelled like death to me. And listen, you're going to smell that way to some people. Now, we do want to make sure that it's the fragrance of Christ that people walk away from. They don't walk away just because of us. You know, because Christians can be mean. Christians can be mean. In fact, Christians can be some of the meanest people on planet Earth. Listen, some of you are mean. (laughs) You think I'm kidding? Most of you are nice. Some of you are mean. You're not kind. You're not gracious. You're not warm. You're grumpy. You're unhappy. People don't like to be around you because you're mean. You know, some people like that, they'll say, well, they just, you know, they don't want to be my friend because of Jesus inside of me. That's not true. You're just a jerk. Listen, you think I'm kidding. Some of you are mean. Some of you are mean. And everybody in the world knows you're mean except for you. And you need to get a clue. So that's not what we're talking about today. We're, we're not talking about being grumpy and unhappy and self-righteous and people walking away from that. Listen, because we're connected to Jesus, we got Jesus in us, we should be the nicest, warmest kindest, most welcoming people in this city. Even when we have to step up and say, hey, we just disagree. Let's agree to disagree. No one should walk away from us feeling that we hate them, that we're against them. It's like sometimes after work, uh, some of our neighbors will get together, the people I live on the street with, and all the kids are playing out in the street. And so, you know, the men are coming home, and we're in Texas, and so somebody's going to bring out some adult beverages, and, uh, and, uh, which is fantastic. You know, so I'm a pastor, so just personal conviction, I don't, I, don't, I don't do that. I don't go with the beer. A, I'm a pastor of this church, and A, I, a B, I just think it tastes disgusting. So those two things working together for me, that's just a personal conviction that I have. I'm not laying that on anybody, just a personal conviction, but I'll be out there in my front yard or my neighbor's front yard, and here comes somebody, you, know, you want one, you want one, you want one, and we're all standing in a circle, and some guys are like, absolutely, had a long day at work, I'm doing this, and uh, you know what I say when it gets to me? No, I'm good. You know what I don't do? I don't break out a three-point sermon, you know, on the nectar of Satan, you know, like I don't, I don't roll like that. That's not it. That's not it. It's, no, I'm good. I'm good. Because what I want my neighbors to know about me is they want to, I want them to know that when they need life, when they need more than what they're currently living and having, when they get in a jam, when they need somebody to pray for them, even though they don't pray, but when something happens and they need somebody to pray, I want them to email me. When they're in an emergency and they need someone serious who takes life seriously and has their lives in order, I want them to knock on the Joneses' door. So I want to smell like Jesus. I want to be a fragrant aroma of Jesus. But to some people, 
no matter what you and I do, it's going to smell like death. Listen, because when Jesus comes around, it means death. It means death to my will. It means death to my way. It means death to my flesh. It means death to my sin. It means death to me being Lord. And it means yes to Jesus being Lord. And sometimes you're going to bump up into some people and they are not ready for that. But then there are others. You smell like life to them. They will look at the victory of Christ in you on display and they will say, I want that. They will come to you and they will say, I need that. How, how, how do you put your life together? How do things always seem to work out for you? Or how do you have this peace even though you're walking through the middle of this? I want what you have and that's your moment as they're drawn into it to name the name of Jesus in that place. And so that may be where you are this morning. Maybe you've been coming because a friend invited you or maybe you've been coming because your life was headed towards destruction and you knew you needed to get off that path and onto another path. And so you thought, well, I'll try church. And so you've been coming and you keep coming and you keep coming and you keep coming and somehow you leave here on Sunday mornings more full than at any other point in your week. It's because it smells like life to you and you're being drawn in to Jesus. And so if that's your situation, then you need to not just be around Jesus. You need to accept him. It's so easy to become a Christian. All you have to do is out of faith, say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You don't have to live a good life for the next two months. You don't have to string together a few days of not doing whatever sin it is that you're caught up in. You just declare Jesus is Lord.